It's Tuesday, September the 29th, and welcome to Goodfellows, a Hoover Institution broadcast examining the social, economic, political, and geopolitical implications in this time of pandemic. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm a research fellow here at the Hoover Institution and the Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Fellow in Journalism. I'll be your moderator today. Now, for you first-time viewers of Goodfellows, which you're about to see is a conversation featuring four Hoover Institution fellows offering their unique insights into these uncertain times. Let's meet the Goodfellows, beginning with John Cochran. He's an economist and the Hoover Institution's Rosemary and Jack Anderson Senior Fellow. How goes it, John? I'm great, thank you. Our second good fellow joining us from the wilderness is the renowned historian and author, Neil Ferguson. Neil is also the Hoover Institution's Milbank Family Senior Fellow. Hello, Neil. Hi, Bill. Pleasure to be with you. Good to see you as always, my friend. Our third good fellow joining us from a rather hectic book tour. We appreciate his taking time out of his schedule to be with us is Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster. He is the Hoover Institution's Fawada Michelle Ajami Senior Fellow. Hello, H.R. Hi, Bill. Good to be with everybody. Good to see you too, HR. And for the first time on the show in the six months we've been doing this, we have a fourth good fellow, and that is John Yu. John is a visiting fellow here at the Hoover Institution. He is a professor at the University of California Berkeley School of Law. He is the author of the book, Defender in Chief, Donald Trump's Fight for Presidential Power. In a past life, bear with us, there are a lot of stops here on the way. John Yu was an aide on the Senate Judiciary Committee. He was a clerk for Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. He was a member of the Bush legal team that descended upon Tallahassee in 2000 to challenge the vote in that election. And he was a clerk on the federal appellate, uh, for a federal appellate judge, one of his colleagues, one of his fellow clerks being a promising young lawyer named Amy Coney Barrett. John, how are you today? Well, my mom finally thinks that I have graduated to a podcast with the grown-ups. She's like, what have you been doing wasting all your time with Richard Epstein? When are you going to get with some serious, tough people? So I'm so happy to be here. Okay, we'll now do our best to dispel her of that notion. So, John, since you are a first-time uh, visitor to Goodfellows, a first-time guest, we're going to put you through a bit of a hazing. And with that, roll the clip. You commit to making sure that there is a peaceful trans of power after the election. Well, we're going to have to see what happens. You know that I've been complaining very strongly about the ballots, and the ballots are a disaster. Okay, John Yu, I want you to defend the Defender-in-Chief. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks for an easy first task. <laughs> so I think he wasn't really answering the question. I think what he was saying was, I have the right to challenge ballots, especially in close elections, which is what Bush did in 2000 in Florida. But I didn't hear him say, I actually refuse to engage in the peaceful transition of power. But the second point is, he's not necessary for the peaceful transition of power. The Constitution, it's interesting, the Constitution and the people who wrote it were actually probably more familiar with military coups, revolutions, disruptions. And they wrote the Constitution so that the transfer of power doesn't depend on the agreement of the person who's sitting in the Oval Office. Whoever's in the Oval Office, their term in office ends January 20th. And at noon, the new president takes over. Everyone in the government, right? The, all the responsibilities, powers, the duties shift to that person. Think about how the votes counted, the electoral college, the opening of the ballots, the resolution of disputed ballots, the, uh, what you do in case of a tie or no majority, that's up to the Senate and mm -hmm. it's up to the House. Again, the president is actually not involved at all in figuring out who won the election and then transferring the position of the office of the presidency to the successor. Now the successor might be Trump if he wins on November 3rd, but it's still a different presidency. It could be a different person. Trump, the existing president, has no say in it. Can I jump in there? Um, so that was an interesting clip. I, my initial reaction was yours. He didn't understand the question. He was answering a different question. 
But the White House could easily have put out a clarification. And there's two dimensions of peace. One, we won't try to use the military, which of course, that's not gonna work. We all know that's not gonna work. Two, we will not encourage our followers to take to the streets and, and, uh, and protest and loot uh, riot, which is the, the non-peaceful part of this uh, thing that I think we're all a little more worried about than a military coup in the US. It certainly would have been useful for the White House to issue a clarification and they could have done so even if he misunderstood the question. So John, um, my problem with what Trump said is this, rather than calming the public, he chums the waters, which has been his style for the last four years. And he enables his opponents to go off in rather fanciful directions, if you will. And let's look at the second clip here, a former presidential candidate uh, giving a rather kind of lurid idea of what might happen on January the 20th. It's really not up to him. <laughs> and uh, I hear people saying, well, will he accept the decision? Well, it doesn't matter. It's not up to him. Uh, because at noon on January 20th, uh, if a new president is elected, I, I hope Joe Biden is elected. And if that is the case, uh, the, uh, the uh, police force, uh, the Secret Service, uh, <laughs> the military, all of the executive branch uh, officers will respond to the command and direction of the new president. Okay, HR, that sounds a little bit like the movie Gladiator, where General Maximus is going to come in and uh, vanquish the illegal emperor and restore the republic. Is that what the military is there for? Well, you know, it's, it's just as bad in terms of the statement, right? And then a few months ago, or maybe, I think maybe two months ago, you had, you had Vice President Biden say something about the Joint Chiefs marching the president out. I mean, th this, is, this is not responsible language for, for all the reasons that John mentioned. I mean, first of all, the, the, really, the, the transition is going to happen based on the, the procedures that are already in place, based on the separation of powers established by our founders who are brilliant at this and had very much on their mind the bloody uh, war, civil wars of the 17th century in England and had in mind the specter of Oliver Cromwell and put in place this bold line between our, our military and, and politics and, and devised this brilliant system that, that runs on its own unless people are dumb enough I mean, to impede it, right? So I just think it's really important for all of our leaders not to contribute to any diminishment in, in, of confidence in the outcome of the election. And that's, that's what I'm concerned about. Mm -hmm. Neil? I don't know. I just thought I heard Al Gore agreeing with John Yu. It's probably never <laughs> happened before, but he kind of said the same as you, John, and I took a rather less alarmist uh, view of, uh, of Al Gore's comments. Hey, I am not at all an expert on the US Constitution or the rules that govern presidential elections. So I want to actually ask John a question. It's kind of a long question. It's one of those, have I got this straight? So let me, let me have a let me have a go. So there could be a contested election in the following way. There could be one or more legal disputes about the counting or recounting of ballots, which was what happened in 2000. Mm -hmm. And that could lead to different state officials certifying different electoral results and sending different state electors to the new Congress, which I think was what happened in 1876, mm -hmm. which could then lead to a Congress, if it's controlled by one party, certifying the results of one set of state officials, which was what happened in 1876. And I think in 1960, or if Congress is divided, being unable to agree on which results to certify, which, if you're still with me, could lead to neither Biden nor Trump having an absolute majority of electoral votes, 
and therefore a contingent election for president in the House and vice president in the Senate, which happened, I think, three times in the 19th century. Have I got that straight? Uh, actually, uh, it could be worse. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you're okay, always the back optimist. To now. <laughs> Neil, you're always the optimist. <laughs> you're bringing your Scottish Enlightenment views to the Constitution, expecting everything to work out perfectly in balance and harmony. Uh, but I just uh, pick up, I think actually what HR had to say ties into this because um, these were uh, founders who had lived through an incredible period, revolution, terrible state governments, and they got together and they wrote out a system um, which tried to anticipate a lot of these crazy scenarios we're all raising. Uh, and uh, didn't get, we've had several elections decided by Congress already, the election of 1800. Uh, that put Thomas Jefferson, that was chosen by the House. If those uh, history buffs may remember, that's because all the electors for the Democratic Party voted for both Jefferson and Aaron Burr, and so they tied. And it was actually when it got into the House, the, the, the weight of power was then, the balance of power was held by the Federalist Party that had just lost. And you might remember, Alexander Hamilton decided who was president, because he told the Federalists, pick Jefferson, he, and it was the, he's least crazy. So, of course, then Aaron Burr shot him for that, but that's another story. Then no, he, a musical. <laughs> no, you can make a musical out of it. We could all make millions. We should, we should put together a Broadway show called Madison, the sequel or something. But we, um, we if I could, John, we, we have a system that is exquisitely designed to be fail-safe and produce an answer, yes. even if 150 things go wrong. It's sort of like a nuclear re reactor. But the issue is, do people accept that answer and the legitimacy of that answer? Uh, that was you know, part of my response. Is peaceful transition. I think we're not worried about a military coup. And I, I took Al Gore's comments to mean the military is going to stay out of this. But there's quite a chance. Let's go down the scenario of chaos, uh, court challenges. There are chaos in the streets. Uh, the military gets called in to put down riots. The people who are rioting say this is the military coup. Uh, you know, it did go horribly wrong once in 1860, in the sense that the system produced an answer and, and half of the states rose up in arms against that answer. Um, so I think there, there is, the, the point of the worry about peaceful transition of power, I think, is not, not that the military will be called out to put Trump in over judges uh, saying otherwise, it's that there will be civil unrest and uh, that people will not accept already a lot of people don't accept the fact that the Electoral College uh, trumps the popular vote. Uh, sorry, I don't need to use the word Trump. The Electoral College is decisive over the popular vote. Uh, the, the less and less feeling of legitimacy of the president in narrow elections is, is along with higher partisanship, is there. A very narrow result decided by courts, decided by um, like these state courts who were deciding to change the election rules, followed by um, civil unrest, followed by there will have to be, of course, police or even National Guard intervention under civil unrest. This is a very ugly picture. And the bottom line is that though you and me and lawyers say, here's the winner, you know, he, he squeaked ahead because there were three hanging chads over in Minnesota that got counted by one court this way and the Supreme Court said, okay, the people on the street don't accept that as legitimate uh, as the legitimate yeah, there's, outcome. There's clearly a difference. Um, there's a famous political scientist named Sam Huntington who talked about what happens when there's a distance between the institutions and uh, legitimacy. You know, there's a growth when the gap becomes bigger and bigger and bigger. What happens? How does a society bring that closer together? All I can say 
is that you're right, there's a legal set of rules. There are all these um, ambiguities in the rules, in fact, but there are a set of rules. They are actually based in the idea, if you look at the Constitution, that, um, that states have a bigger and bigger role and majority democracy has less and less of a role as you get farther into figuring out who's president. Uh, the Electoral College is just the most democratic part of it, actually. Um, then you would switch in a disputed election with no majority in the Electoral College. You, you actually then switch to the House, but in the House, each state has one vote. So it really is just the, uh, the states picking through the House. So you're, you're quite right. What happens if that process is not seen as legitimate? All I can do, and this is, you know, we have several historians here, all I can do is point you to the election of 1876, which Neil raised already. Uh, I would say the political times then were worse than they are now. You, that was a time when you had Union troops occupying the South. I mean, you had military governors throughout the South, and three states both sent, two, three states sent two slates of electors each, a Republican slate and a Democratic slate. And as in, I mean, this is another reason to kick Florida out of the Union. In the end, it was Florida again, both in 1876 and 2000, which could not resolve it, and their votes made the difference. So this is where politics comes in, I think, is in 1876, Congress did something which was not in the Constitution. They said, before we count the votes, we're going to form a special commission. And right, there'll be one-third Republicans, one-third Democrats. And I think, John, you might have thought this, but one-third retired or current Supreme Court justices. And that and one guy, the fifth of those five justices, was the deciding vote. He gave every vote to the Republicans. And so the Republican candidate won, but the political deal in the House was Union troops had to withdraw and Reconstruction ended. Right. That's, that seems much more severe politically than what we're living through uh, today, yet the country did accept uh, the outcome. One problem we have in 2020, we didn't have in 1876, is different states with different standards for voting. Some states vote much earlier than other states. Um, states like Michigan and Pennsylvania have had recent rulings to extend the counting of mail voting. That's what the legal challenges are about. In Florida, there's a controversy over felons being allowed to vote. And again, this is why legal teams descend upon these various states and force the challenges. Aren't we going to continue to have these contested elections as long as we have this this uh, this this patchwork of states in terms of different rules? And should the federal government step in and apply one standard? For example, should voting only be allowed on election day? Should mail-in voting only be allowed to be counted one day after the election and so forth? Well, the Constitution creates, I think this is one of the beauties of it, it creates a decentralized system where it's up to each state how to run the elections and then mo almost all states devolve that down to the counties it actually, when I read stories about did the Russians hack into our election system, I was like, good luck hacking to 36,000 county, you know, electoral commissions. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you're, you really hacked into the computer of the 75-year-old lady who's counting the ballots in her, you know, her in Alameda County, California. But that is socialization. I'm sorry, John. So other countries are, are much more careful. I mean, there's yeah, more technology in voting. Now, the voting rules in our country have a, a painful racial history, which is why we don't update it. But, um, you know, this, this counting votes is not something that's that hard of a problem these days in other countries. I, I want to steer you in another direction, though. We have an exquisitely designed system to produce one winner who then has everything, uh, you know, and, and sort of one Chad can count that. Um, parliamentary systems have a way when you're very, very close of negotiating a deal. Uh, okay. Um, uh, you know, you know uh, Biden gets to be president, but you're not passing a wealth tax 
an income tax or the Green New Deal. And, and thereby, you have to assemble a larger majority before you make huge changes. Um, now, we sort of had that with the system of checks and balances. But I think one of the reasons things are getting so politicized, so partisan now, is that we're more of a uh, a tiny majority can make these huge, change, huge changes. And we don't have a way in the presidential election to make a, a deal like, you know, some sort of deal of you squeaked by so you get power, but you're not going to get to push things as far as you usually would. The parliamentary systems, for all of their many, many uh, disadvantages, at least have that ability. I think that's hardwired into the Constitution, but the original idea was not to give all the power to the one, right, the squeaker, the squeaker buyer, I suppose you call them, it was to actually make it really hard to do anything, right? So you, do, you talk about this exquisite separation of powers. We've become accustomed, I think, to the progressive vision of government, which is should be passing a lot of laws all the time, doing something, which I associate more with a parliamentary system of government, uh, which yeah, can allow for wide it. swings, right? You 50.1% in Thatcher's England, and you can deprivatize all the industry, the American system, it's, it is a f designed for effective action in the presidencies, particularly national security, execution of laws. But you look at what they did, they wanted to make it really hard to pass laws. I don't think the founders would have been so upset with a president with a tenuous or weak democratic claim to a mandate. That would have made them very suspicious. Someone saying, I have this mandate and I'm just going to change all the regulations and laws in the country based on just winning a very slight majority of the popular vote. That's why all the elections are at different times. That's why you know the Senate is representing the states. So if there's any culprit, I would say it's actually Congress because what Congress did to change that system, I blame Woodrow Wilson for this. It was, I think his idea in America was for Congress to vest a lot of legislative power in the executive branch agencies. Well, they, uh, so that they can make a lot of laws rapidly and quickly and over time rather than having to go through the House and the Senate and getting the president's signature. That's what caused. And, and now we don't, even, we're talking we're, about. we don't even bother with the rulemaking procedure. We just write executive orders and dear colleague letters. So this, this is a thesis that I wanted to try out on you as somebody who knows more about it than I do, that the um, increasing power of the uh, executive agencies, the presidencies, the Supreme Court, uh, um, is what is causing the higher partisanship because it's much more of a winner-take-all battle. Whereas before, yeah, you, you win the presidency, you, you got to win the Senate and the House and takes a while and the electoral minorities have rights to, there was a stronger filibuster and you can just slow things down until 70 to 80% of the population is convinced something's a good idea. And even if it wasn't a good idea, then finally that can make, that, that can get through. Mm -hmm. Another, John, I'm not convinced that there's actually that much broken. And I think John, John, you and I would, would be inclined to say, stop arguing for fixes to the system. The system is working as designed. And even although it's true that the executive branch has accumulated a great deal of power in the last hundred years or so, it's nevertheless the case that if you win the presidency but don't win uh, the control of the Senate, there's a lot less that you can do. It's also the case that most active presidents find themselves checked pretty quickly, usually the midterms of their first term. Look at what happened to Obama. 
in 2010. When I look back on the recent history of, of American elections, and I'm struck by the fact that the system kind of works as designed in, in, in the way that John, you suggested, I'm also struck by the fact that elections have got a lot closer. And, and part of our problem is that compared with uh, most modern elections, the last few elections have been really tight races. If you just look back at, at the elections since 1968, uh, uh, what strikes me is enormous volatility in polling followed by pretty clear results. But more recently, uh, I guess really since 2000, results have been closer and the last few elections very close indeed. And that's part of what makes it feel like there's something amiss with the system. But let me put, put a kind of um, contrarian view here. I think all of these hyperventilating articles about the impending collapse of the Republic, the constitutional crisis of 2020 and the um, upcoming civil war will look like articles about the Y2K millennium bug because I don't think any of this stuff is going to happen. I actually think there will be a pretty clear result. Uh, it won't be uh, close enough to contest. And all of these articles will be, as my grandfather used to say, wrappings for fish and chips. And we'll look back and say, do you remember how everybody thought it was going to be incredibly close? I mean, let's just, let's keep this simple. Who gets reelected in the midst of an economic situation and a public health situation like this? I mean, can you give me one example of somebody who gets reelected in a mess, in such messy circumstances as we currently have? I mean, I know we're supposed to believe that the polls are totally unreliable, but I'm looking at them now and I just struggle to see what can possibly happen between now and November the 3rd for this to be well, close. In, in the past, both parties have put up more... Um, how can we put it, more plausible candidates. I mean, you look at either of these guys and you wonder of the other party, how can they possibly lose to this? Uh, you know, the Democrats ought to be, yes, uh, you know, in, in, in a pandemic that has not been beautifully run, they ought to be just killing it. But then they, you know, you read the Democratic Party platform and, and boy, it's hard to vote for that. And then, so, I, I, you know, the closeness may just be that, uh, the rise of incompetence on both sides and the rise of competence. Both parties are really good at, at finding a coalition that, that, uh, that it, it gets a half of the electorate. Right. HR, you're yeah, it's not close. I, I think you're, the worries about are about what happens if it's really, really close. In a battleground state. Lawyers fan out around the country. And, and, but if it's, if it's obviously one way or the other, uh, thank goodness, and, and then it'll all pass and the system will have worked. HR, you're a first-time voter in this election, correct? <laughs> I am. Let me, can I explain that, though, quickly, just so people don't think that I don't appreciate our democratic process? I, I went to West Point when I was 17. I, 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 was, I believe that we ought to keep our military studiously nonpartisan. I followed the example of General George Marshall and didn't vote as, as, as a serving military officer. Mm -hmm. So I will vote. I registered independent. I will not discuss how I'm going to vote, obviously, or endorse any candidates. I just don't think it's appropriate even for retired officers to do it, although I respect those who do choose to do that. So I, you know, I just think it's, it's, it's immensely important these days, and, and I, I take well the, the corrections really to my comment about, about, uh, about uh, Vice President Gore. You know, I, I did maybe jump too quickly on that, but I, I just, I just it bristle, I bristle at any mention of the military in the same sentence as the transition. I think those ought to be completely you know, uh, th th those, those conversations can be irresponsible in connection with dragging and pulling the military into politics. And I'd like to know, what John, John you, what you think about these practices in recent administrations of dueling lists of generals and admirals, you know, endorsing various candidates. And do you see a danger of the politicization of the military? I do in, in terms of 
really politicians pulling the military in. I believe that our profession is still studiously, for those who are serving on active duty in particular, uh, you know, apolitical. But what, what, are, your, what are your thoughts? That's a, it's a great question because it's come up a lot during this election. And, um, you know, I often say uh, in class in constitutional law on the first day, I say the most important provision of the Constitution is never studied in law school which is probably true of a lot of other things too, but it's civilian control of the military. In most other countries, that is the most important value in the constitution. In our country, we take it so as so much for granted, we don't even think about how does that happen. And, and so I think one thing that I've noticed is, uh, I think when retired officers do come out and write these letters and criticize a sitting commander in chief, I do think that undermines a little bit the civilian control of the military. When you have military officers attacking civilian candidates from, I have no problem with the military officers themselves want to run for office. You know, that's, I think, a better thing to do. But, you know, I think the military officers are drawing on their, their respect that people have for the military, their experience, uh, their knowledge. And it comes with the suggestion, I know things that bring me, bring into doubt the civilian, and that's the civilian leadership of the country. So I, I, I do worry about it. I, I do notice this is a new phenomenon. I don't think there were you know, generals for Carter, generals for Reagan, right? Uh, you know, 40 well, years ago. Part of, if I did this part of, I'm still more worried than Neil, I guess, about our system. A lot of our system is buttressed by norms. Um, people don't do things for the good of the country and the system and the reputation of their institutions, even though that might get them ahead in today's political battle. And, and many of those things are falling by the wayside. Um, many institutions that were formally decidedly nonpartisan now are taking sides and foaming at the mouth. And it would be, it'll be very sad if, if the military is one that goes in that direction, but it's, it's a part of many other institutions that have become partisan and that the norms used to be no, uh, you know, for the good of the country, for the good of the institution. We oh, still hang on a minute though, John. I mean, <sighs> MacArthur, uh, came back and tried to confront Harry Truman after Truman fired him uh, because MacArthur wanted to use nuclear weapons to end the Korean War. MacArthur got a ticker tape parade when he returned to the United States. But Truman won out uh, because actually no other uh, general came close to backing MacArthur. Uh, th there was a rather good novel written around about uh, that time, just a few years later, imagining the kind of military uh, coup scenario. Uh, five days in May, seven days in May, I forget how many days in May. Um, but uh, I, which I think got, got Burt Lancaster a great part when it was made into a movie. Americans have been worried about this stuff for a long time. And of course, there wouldn't have been a civil war if the military hadn't split over the key issue of, of slavery and, uh, and if there hadn't been military support for the Confederacy. Well, I, I, it seems to me we're in much less peril now than than was the case in those previous decades. You know, one of the things to announce, I remember this is my first election that I get to vote in it for a different reason from HR, because I'm just a, uh, an immigrant. But to an outsider, uh, what's striking about, about the United States is that Americans are always convinced that the Republic is in peril and that democracy is about to be overthrown. I mean, ever since I got here, I mean, when I first started to work uh, in the United States, which was 2002, 
uh, early in George W. Bush's presidency. I remember the liberals then saying uh, that, that George W. Bush was going to use the war in Iraq to establish tyranny, and it was the American empire, and he was Julius Caesar. I mean, come on, uh, uh, come on, man, as Joe Biden likes to say. These worries are always kind of like feverish worries, that there are articles at the moment which I think only have one political purpose, which is to freak Democratic voters out enough to get them to vote. Conjuring up images of the crisis of the Republic, Donald Trump as Richard III. And it, to me, it just seems like hyperventilation because the American system has worked better than nearly every other democratic system and better than all the others really in the new world. And there's a reason for that, which John, you alluded to at the beginning of our conversation. The founders designed it to be tyrant proof and it's been successfully tyrant proof all the way through, which is why I find so much of the current commentary verging on, on hysterical. I mean, I think even if there is a close result, even if we get into the territory uh, of the worst case scenarios like that extraordinary piece I just read in The Atlantic, uh, which some of you may have seen, Barton Gelman's uh, End of the Republic uh, scenario, I struggle to see how, if in his worst nightmares, through a combination of uh, voter suppression and lawfare and uh, Mike Pence playing uh, a bad actor. If, if all of this leads to Donald Trump uh, being reelected, uh, despite losing the popular vote, perhaps by more than happened four years ago, is there really going to be a revolution in the United States? Can I, let me no. throw in maybe the example of 1824, where you have all these factors at work, where you have three candidates for the presidency. Uh, general Jackson, most popular man in America probably at the time, successful general. Um, you have um, John Quincy Adams, the inheritor of the Adams family lineage. And then you have Henry Clay, third party candidate, no majority in the Electoral College. General Jackson basically wins a plurality of the popular vote and the Electoral College votes. It gets thrown into the House. And once it's in the House, each state votes one by one. John Quincy Adams and Henry Clay make a deal in the politics of it. John Quincy Adams says, if you throw your votes to me, I'm going to make you Secretary of State. Andrew Jackson is really ticked off, right? He, if, I mean, he makes Donald Trump look like a wilting flower, right? He is, this is a serious guy with a temper. He's reputed to have killed a man in a duel. He fought in the Revolutionary War as a six-year-old. Right? So this is a tough guy. Jackson doesn't try to engineer a coup. He doesn't go to the military and say, support me. He just spends the next four years campaigning against Adams, campaigning against Clay. And then the next time in 1828, he won a decisive majority. So even, so my point is just, even though you had a general who was the most popular man in the country who could have, you know, raised a lot of these doubts that John is mentioning, he still worked through the system, which was win the next election. If you don't well, like the way the House picked it, if you don't like the way the Senate picked the vice president. Except for winning that seems much more, much more at stake there than our current election. We, we don't seem to win the next election. I, I think the most likely scenario is one or the other uh, uh, is, is close. And then piss scorched earth pitch battle warfare for the next four years. So suppose Trump wins with narrow, you know, the Supreme Court votes him and so forth, but the Senate is in the hands of the Democrats. The investigations start the next day. The new impeachment starts the next day. Uh, not one single appointee is going to get uh, is is going to get reappointed. I mean, the government will will just basically be at war with itself uh, while the rest of us get on our business. Which is uh, that's not as bad as revolution, but I think that's an economist should love that. 
The government doesn't do anything and the private markets function. Isn't that your ideal state? Free market economists believe in in the rule of law and a competent government. And there's a lot of stuff. We have a lot of stuff overhanging us that just needs to be fixed. And I mean, maybe we should pivot to the Supreme Court because there's a lot of stuff there too that has been needed to be fixed for 20, 30 years and is sitting over us. It's a good example, I think, of because Neil's view of it's all been the same, I think is, is this is a case where we clearly see that it's not always been the same. You used to, you know, presidents used to get their appointees if they weren't, you know, really uh, terrible characters, pretty much appointed. And yet we're now on scorched earth. All the norms of I don't do this to you and you won't do it to me when it's my term, uh, turn all the norms of, uh, you know, there's the loyal opposition who just works quietly to get reelected as opposed to undermining everything that's going on. I mean, that's, uh, that's off on full display uh, in Supreme Court uh, picks. Right. So, so John, you, we, we've already seen the volatility of this election where uh, Judge Barrett has announced on Saturday, then before you know it, the New York Times has the piece out on Trump's taxes. And now today is debate day. Uh, she's not an afterthought. She'll come roaring back into the picture on October the 12th when the hearings begin. But I did pick up John when she um, gave her remarks at, at the uh, Rose Garden. She said, quote, a judge must apply the law as written. Now, call me a cynic, but it seems to me, John, you, every time a Republican picks a Supreme Court pick, they say those words. When they go on the court, it's like watching Charlie Brown try to kick the football. The judge lets them down. What is different about Amy Coney Barrett, or is she also going to let you down? So, so first, all Republican and Democratic nominees to the Supreme Court say, I will enforce the laws written. I would never do anything other than what the law says. Right. But as we all know, hey, you study any government official, any government decision, there's a lot of discretion built in, and there's all kinds of cases that come up you never anticipated. Mm-hmm. That's just the nature of it. So, uh, you know, we can't, you can't take anything from the fact that someone says, says no, that. No, but you hear the drumbeat, she's different. This is not going to be Roberts and DACA and Roberts yeah. and the ACA. She's not going to be Souter. She's not going to be Earl Warren. She is unique. Do you yeah, buy so that? I, yeah, no, no. I, so I think so. And the reason why is because, uh, and here I'm not... Uh, I'm not uh, pandering to the audience here, the fellow panelists, but she's an academic. Mm-hmm. And I think that makes a big difference. So uh, I think Republican presidents, uh, really before Trump, in reaction to the, uh, the borking of Bork, you know, it's interesting, Bork is both a verb and a noun and an adverb. It's an amazing status. So after the attacks on Bork, who was the most qualified person you could have picked, that President Reagan could have picked in his day? Right. Republican presidents have tried to pick stealth candidates, people who they, you know, wink, wink, nod, nod, that person's conservative, but with no paper record. John Roberts is a great example. No one could find anything he'd ever written or said about any controversial constitutional issue in his whole life, going back to when he was in high school, (laughs) right? So this is really different with Trump. Trump has been picking, for the lower courts too, but for the Supreme Court people with defined long records. Amy Coney Barrett has much more written as a nominee than Justice Scalia ever did. If I could, let me challenge She's very clear on what she wants to do. She thinks the Constitution is to be interpreted based on original understanding. She thinks that only light deference should be given to past decisions and stare decisis. She's interested. She's even written about what is a Catholic judge supposed to do when her moral views conflict with her duty as a judge. And she has said, I will follow. She wrote about the death penalty and Catholic judges. And she said, Catholic judges have to enforce a death penalty or recuse or even resign. We know more about her and the way her brain thinks 
than we probably do about most other nominees, maybe going all the way back to Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who she's replacing, because she also was an academic and had a long record, and we knew a lot about her too. Let me challenge you on this as an economist who thinks people do what they have to do. Uh, (laughs) um, In my view, the court, no matter how they feel about it and how badly judged it is, is not gonna overturn Roe v. Wade. The Roberts, Roberts went into pretzels not to overturn the ACA. Unfortunately, Congress is not doing its job of passing laws. There's a great Wall Street Journal article, um, I think it was last week, pointing out that the Democrats could easily have passed a national abortion law had they felt like it. It was more convenient for them to keep this constantly in the air to, to, to get people excited. But the court knows that if it is the, the single arbiter of all these big decisions and shoves things down people's throats, uh, that it is going to get packed. They understand that threat. But they also know that they, all they have is, is people's regard for them um, and that they just are not going to, out of the blue, uh, undo major political things. And that, uh, so I, I don't know where it's like I hope we shall be reading law is not about a poor abortion and uh, what shall be reading law is is about what really matters is the the statutes underlying the reg- regulatory state where uh, we don't have a big partisan whoop do every time. But that's the place where we you know, we've gone way far outside of what the actual law says. Mm-hmm. I, I was actually going to say that the Supreme Court has many of the attributes that HR was uh, giving to the military by staying out of politics, the respect yeah. for the people actually increases, but that also right, limits what they can do. I mean, it's just a sort of, uh, ju- you know, Hamilton said the judiciary has neither force, which is what the executive has, or will, which is the legislature. All they have is judgment. And he meant that means the voluntary acceptance by the people to follow the court because they think it's right, not because they have votes or because they have the sword. It's a yeah. very... Is, is, Wickard v. Filburn was probably <laughs> completely unconstitutional. And boy, would I like to go back and get rid of that one. This is one of the defining uh, ones of the New Deal that gave the federal government power to tell you you can't grow wheat in your own backyard to bake your own bread if you don't have a federal marketing order uh, since upheld by Justice Scalia. But they're not going to go back and say, look, the federal government can't regulate the economy because kind of people have accepted that. And, and the legislature has to step up and start doing their job. Let me say on um, non-economic matters, I think they do play this role because as people said, the Congress doesn't want to decide them, as you've said, but uh, abortion, uh, race, gun rights, free speech, religious rights, those are all going to be at the court. And um, no matter what it does, people are going to be unhappy with it. No matter what it does, people are going to think it acted politically. So maybe the best thing Trump can do, although I don't know if this is what he did intentionally, but appoint justices who try to withdraw the court from making these decisions at all. It's not that you overrule Roe versus Wade, you just send it back to the state legislatures, let people fight about it in politics, right. uh, rather than the court deciding what abortion yes, policy. That's I think where they'll go. Go, go ahead, HR. Follow up on that, John. So you just quoted Federalist 78. And what I have in mind as I watched this election is, is Federalist 10 and Madison and, and how concerned he was about factions. What you're recommending is a way that the court, which was which was, was supposed to be you know, the weakest branch of government to have it, as you mentioned, neither force nor will, only judgment. Could, what's your assessment of, of the court today and, and, and just broadly how it fits in to how factionalized we become? And factions was, of course, the, 
the, the word that our, our founders were using for political parties. Uh, what do you think Hamilton or the pseudonymous Brutus, you know, who argued with Hamilton in, in, uh, in Federal 78 would say about the situation of our politics today, as well as separation of powers, uh, and, and especially in connection with the role of the Supreme Court? You're actually setting up, Neil, because Federalist Number 10 is thought to be the injection of the Scottish Enlightenment into yeah. our political system through that one Federalist paper, this idea of this right, smoothly functioning, balanced system. I mean, Madison, I don't know if you, you know, you could say maybe he was wrong, but his vision was, right, the expanding republic where interest groups in a vast country would never be able to take over. You'd have to have coalitions. So he turned Montesquieu upside down and said, actually, republics could only survive in a large space, not a city state. Notice your point about HR is that Federalist Number 10 has no role for the courts. The, the smooth functioning American democracy in Federalist Number 10 doesn't depend on the courts. They're completely absent. And I think that was, um, you know, I think conservatives and libertarians are very much split about the role of the courts in our society. I think the conservative view is get them out of politics, you know, get them out of making any important decisions at all. Um, John's, John's point about economic regulation was kind of a deal we made after the New Deal that the courts are going to get out of reviewing economic regulation too, right? Until 1937, they would strike down minimum wage and maximum hour laws. They thought all that, you know, they thought they could judge all that too. And so well, maybe- they, 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 they said it was unconstitutional and they were probably right. Oh, no, no, they upheld that. No, they, upheld, they, they upheld the ridiculousness of Wickard versus Filburn actually. They know after they changed their minds and they- and they, yeah, you know, yeah, they changed their minds under political pressure. So we're getting out of this job. Yeah. Textualists have to face, you know, when 70% of the people want it some other way, you can be all textualist as you want, but you've got the reputation of the court on the line. You're not going to go do it. This is the safest thing. I think uh, scholars of both parties, you know, who tend to be on the losing end at the time say is if the court withdraws from politics, decides everything on the narrowest grounds possible in a minimal way, that gives the maximum space for politics to work. If you're unhappy, then you can go change people's well, minds and votes. You don't try to attack the Supreme Court and fight about Amy Coney Barrett because she doesn't matter that much anymore. Well, like, the Supreme well, Court doesn't matter that much anymore. We've got is the demands of our legislators. Legislation. And we were talking about these state election laws. This wouldn't all be in the courts if the states had passed functional election laws. But the state legislatures say, well, you know, you can ask for a ballot 10 minutes before it has to be in and the post office shall deliver it. And the poor court is faced with a law that is dysfunctional and the legislature doesn't go back and fix it. Same with about all these other things. I mean, really, the solution to partisanship in the court is to fix the legislature. John, I was just this was the fear of Brutus, wasn't it, in, in, in Federalist 78, right? That, that the court would become independent of heaven itself, right, was the fear, and would undermine the idea, the radical idea of the revolution that sovereignty was the people. Right, not not with an unelected judiciary. HR is embarrassing me because HR has read the anti-federalist papers too, <laughs> so, <laughs> which very few people have. And so, one interesting thing to just as a scholarly point is all the federalist papers are responses to the anti-federalists. We read them as a book, but they're not a book; they are dialogue. And so, there's you if you read them together, they make a lot more sense. People oh, think the anti-federalists were right. HR, you're right because the people who thought the government would be too big. The Supreme Court would be too powerful. This was the common threat. They actually didn't attack the presidency much at all. That was the least of their concerns. They turned out, a lot of people think they, they turned out to be right. I'd like to get Neil's thoughts on one topic, the idea that elections have consequences and two ideas floating around the Hill. The Democrats take control of the Senate and Joe Biden's there to sign the bill. 
One nail is the idea of uh, term limits for Supreme Court justices. There's a bill in the House that would, I think, apply an 18-year term limit. The other one, Neil, the idea of adding more justices to the court, to which I ask you, what could go wrong with that idea? <laughs> well, I think it's remarkable that the people who have spent the last four years arguing that Donald Trump poses a fundamental threat not only to the Constitution, but to the norms of government, are in such a hurry to make changes to the Constitution and the norms of government when they get into power. And it strikes me as politically a tremendous mistake uh, for all these progressive commentators to start uh, threatening to pack the court. I can't think of a better way to get conservative voters to turn out and vote than those, uh, than those three words. Um, actually, it's odd because I don't think that a Biden administration needs to do that, uh, nor does it need uh, even to create uh, Puerto Rico and DC, the District of Columbia as states to do what they most want to do. And I see this uh, Biden presidency, if that's what we're facing, as being very focused on, on the economy and on uh, rerunning the great Keynesian experiments of the 1960s and 1970s with massive spending and higher taxes uh, on corporations and wealthy individuals. That's their priority. And they learned from the Obama years that if you don't prioritize that in your first two years, you, you, you end up hitting some kind of political wall, usually in the midterms. So I think it, it, from Biden's point of view, it's just terrible campaigning. And it's also not smart politics to, to get into these things. And I, I don't actually think there's enormous appetite in the center of the uh, the Democratic Party where Biden resides to do this stuff. Uh, for me, the in interest value of a Bi Biden presidency really lies, and this is John Cochran's territory, in how quickly the great experiment in, in, in spend and tax goes wrong. It might actually seem to be working at first, given the way the pandemic has left the US economy. But I'm pretty sure that by the time we get to 2022, uh, the, the juice will, uh, will have run out and will end up with some kind of inflationary surprise. And that's what we'll be talking about two years from now. Is this the Carter presidency part, you know, part two, which, it, which seems to me to be the most, the most likely scenario? I, I would, um, I don't think this is the Biden presidency. Remember, they call themselves now the Harris-Biden presidency already. And I don't think the experiment they want is Keynesianism. I think the experiment you're seeing is going to be much more heavily on the regulation side uh, on on stakeholder capitalism, on telling people what to do, uh, it's going to be the the woke presidency, not the uh, uh, not not the Keynesian presidency. And to that end, um, you know, it, the, these the when they tell you all the horrible things Trump is going to do, I read, oh, so here's your playbook. Uh, uh, this the element here of grab power and keep it, the get rid of the filibuster, get rid of the electoral college. Uh, put stakeholder capitalism so that the government can tell, who controls the government can tell every corporation what to do, how to speak, regulate the internet, regulate speech on the internet. This, this is a, uh, that part of it is a real grab for power, which I think Orwell told us is what it is all about. John, I think if, if they win big in the Senate, if they really win big in the Senate, then I think that stuff starts to become uh, viable. But if they're, if they're only 
there with the very narrow majority, then I don't think they're gonna they're gonna go there. If they if they get rid of the filibuster, then they only need fifty one well disciplined votes. They don't, they don't even need to get rid of the filibuster to do the fiscal stuff that they want to do. But I I take your point that, and I wrote about this the other day in my Bloomberg opinion column. If it's a Harris presidency, then the whole country is California writ large, uh, which is a grim prospect. Yes, so I come back to John Yu's point. I mean, the backlash against that within a two year time frame will bring the Republicans back pretty swiftly to power in Congress, I'm confident. Okay, so we have just a couple minutes left, so let's just go quickly around the horn. I want each of you just to give me one fix you would give to the system right now, some way to make the public feel better about this vote that's about to happen. John Yu, why don't you go first? Okay, let me go last. I had no, I'm not used to this lightning round. So I have no idea what you're going to ask. Okay. I'll, I'll take any volunteer to go first. Well, I'm happy to go first. Uh, we have an age limit on how uh, uh, young you can be to run for president. I think it's high time we had an age limit on how old you can be. Okay. All right. Age limit for Ferguson. HR? I think listen to John You study our constitution and our founding, and it will restore confidence in our republic. <laughs> John Cockrell. I want to restore norms of decency somehow in in how we run things. But if you want one fix to the current moment, uh, I I think the idea of term term limits for Supreme Court justices or at least an age limit. Uh, The Supreme Court, the Pope and the Queen all ought to retire at age, I don't know, 85. Yeah, you're an 87-year-old Diane Feinstein has some interesting thoughts on that, by the way. Uh, finally, John, you, I've given you a minute here to stall. Give us I got a something. I got something. I'm not sure it's a great one, but I thought it's something, <laughs> which was uh, uh, make Congress vote on all major policy decisions. So there's this proposal to say if any uh, regulation impacts the economy more than $50 million, it can't go into effect until Congress passes it. Okay, good idea. Retrospective. Yeah, retrospective review of regulation. Yeah. yeah. Retrospectively, too. We, there, okay. Our problem, our problem, Bill, is we got about a hundred, and you asked us to pick one out of our hundred babies. It's hard. <laughs> Come back and do it again. We got thirty-five days until the election, five weeks in a day. So let's call it a day with this uh, podcast, and we'll broadcast, and we'll come back uh, and do it again before the election. Sound good? Sounds good. Thanks, John. We'll Thanks, Thanks for having me, everybody. It was great. I, hope I, get, I hope I get to come back on again. <laughs> <laughs> I'll let you the Goodfellows vote on you, John. We'll, I'll tell you how it happens. So <laughs> that's it for this week's edition of Goodfellows. Uh, thanks for watching. On the behalf of the Goodfellows, Neil Ferguson, H.R. McMaster, John Cochran, and our guest, John Yu. Again, thanks for watching. Stay safe. Stay healthy. By all means, be careful out there. We'll do our best here at the Hoover Institution to help you stay informed. We'll see you next week. Thank you.